it's a very effective way of actually finding drugs that work. And this kind of adaptive design has not been used in oncology before. I think uh, Probio is, is the forerunner of actually using this. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio, the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome, Annette. Thank you, Gustav. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's cold outside. How is yeah. it in, in Stockholm, where you live? I think it is uh, 10, maybe. It looks very Mine's cold. Very, very maybe, cold. maybe. Uh, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Can't be verified. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We are Swedes, so we're talking about the weather. Yes. Yes. Uh, today we have a new guest. Who is the guest? Henrik Grönberg. Yes, and Henrik Grönberg is a professor in oncology, and he will talk about his new trial, uh, ProBio. Yes, a really hot topic, I must say. So excited. Yes, yes. using biomarkers. Uh, I think we just should start. We take it away. Yes, yes, take it away. Professor Henrik Gronberg is a Swedish oncologist and cancer researcher, and he's the inventor of the Stockholm 3 test, a simple blood test where biomarkers are used to detect aggressive prostate cancer at an early stage, a test that replaces traditional PSA screening. In 2016, Henrik Gronberg received the Nordic Medical Prize for his research on the importance of genetic factors in prostate cancer. Professor Gronberg and his team are always eager to do something no one else has ever done. Next up, the ProBio trial. Welcome to Terragnostic Talks, Henrik Grönberg. About time that we talk to a Swede in the podcast again. How are you today? I'm fine, actually. I'm, I'm sitting in a hotel room in Oslo, uh, preparing for starting a, a start meeting in one of the Oslo hospitals for the ProBio study. And that, that's something we will talk more about today. Uh, you are one of the, what, what do you say, one of the head uh, uh, behind the Stockholm Tree Study. And I think maybe some of our listeners have heard about this. Can you please tell us more? What is the, 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 the Stockholm Tree? Yeah, we've been, I mean, my research group at Karolinska Institute, we've been working with uh, um, biomarkers in prostate cancer, everything from early detection to... Uh, uh, biomarkers for treatment prediction and uh, the Stockholm 3 test um, is a test that um, will re uh, will replace PSA as an early diagnostic test and uh, the thought from the beginning was that P is not good enough um, it has a low sensitivity and low specificity for finding clinical significant prostate cancer and uh, we thought that if you combined several uh, plasma biomarkers, uh, protein biomarkers, five um, we use in the Stockholm 3 test, with genetic markers for prostate cancer susceptibility, together with clinical data, and put that together into one test with a quite complex algorithm. Um, that might be, I mean, taking uh, the diagnostic to the next level. And we've been working with this now for over 10 years and uh, uh, published uh, uh, really large uh, studies, uh, one with 58,000 men and the last one now with 13,000 men and uh, in a randomized trial. And um, 
it's it's actually now used as a clinical test uh, and be used by more than 30,000 uh, patients. Wow. So 30, thank you so much for that uh, um, explanation, Henrik. And, um, and you so, use that, in, sorry, do you use that as a clinical routine at Karolinska in Stockholm? Yeah, we, we used it at the Capi St. Jörans Hospital uh, yeah, where, uh, where I work, but also there are other uses in, in Norway, Finland, uh, Denmark, Spain, and Italy now. So it's actually starting to use that as a, as, a, as a commercial test. And I think it's been a, it's been a very interesting uh, journey to go from a research idea to a commercial test, I, actually. That's, that's a journey that I never in thought clinical, I would. And used in clinical practice. So in Absolutely. what do you think? How many patients uh, has benefited from this so far? Uh, we know that over 30,000 men have, have done the Stockholm 3 test now. Henrik, um, you have uh, you told earlier when we uh, talked a little bit that you and your colleagues uh, want to do something that has not been able to do before. Nobody has done it before. And this, you mentioned ProBio before. Tell us. Well, I think the... I'm working with prostate cancer and metastatic prostate cancer. And the the problem we have is that, or not a problem, I think it's, it's actually very good that we now have five, six different treatment options for men with metastatic prostate cancer. And there will be more than five, uh, more coming the next uh, five years. So here we have a problem where we have several different drugs and we don't know which one to use to the patient uh, upfront. Uh, and um, how to se- how to select patient to the right uh, drug, and um, then we start thinking about in our group, um, can we do a study where we use biomarkers prospectively to select patient to the right uh, drug? So um, we start th- thinking about this 2017 and got funding uh, the same year, and. Um, now, uh, the basic idea is to use biomarkers uh, from blood. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And um, use that, do a, a genomic analysis, and see which mutations uh, do this uh, particular patient have, uh, and can that predict treatment response to, for example, chemotherapy, new hormonal treatment, PARP inhibitors, immunotherapy. And how uh, much, uh, sorry, Henrik, how many... Uh, deviations can you look for today? Are you able to identify? So then I can go to to what we use for biomarkers. We use um, a blood test and um, in the blood there is small DNA uh, fragments from the uh, tumor. It's called circulating tumor DNA. And now we have in my group worked with that for seven, eight years and we have now a technology that we can fish out these very, very small DNA fragments. Um, sequence them and actually see what which uh, mutations the prostate cancer tumor has. And uh, right now we're using a panel of about 80 different genes, the most important genes for prostate cancer. Um, and then we compare these small DNA fragments that come from the blood um, with uh, germline DNA. And germline DNA is um, coming from white blood cells. And um, the, in, in the white blood cells, we have germline DNA, which harbors all the inherited mutations that we have. 
Then we have two different things. We have germline DNA and tumor DNA. And then you can very easily say which mutations come from the tumor and which are inherited and use that information. Uh, and now you have uh, planned this trial or this study. Uh, can you tell us how does it work? What is the design of the study? Well, the design, I mean, is a, a complex design. It's called a platform design. Um, and a platform design is that you have one common control arm and then you have several different arms with your experimental drugs. So in ProBio, we right now have five different drugs at, uh, that we uh, test at the same time with one common control arm. That's called a platform trial. And that's the difference between the, the normal trial, which you have one experimental arm and one control arm. So I think that's one of the unique things with the ProBio. The next unique thing is that we use what we call adaptive design. And adaptive design is simply said that, that you actually, uh, for each patient that are included in the trial, we evaluate how well a patient responds to a treatment based on the biomarker signature he has. So if a patient has a specific biomarker signature and responds well, the next time a similar patient with the same biomarker signature comes into the trial, it's more likely that he will get the drug that actually worked for the patient uh, included earlier. And with this kind of adaptive design, uh, the drug, the biomarker drug combination that works well will be more and more frequent, and those that do not work well will be less frequent. So, the, so, so it's a little bit like machine learning, actually. Exactly. It's actually machine mm. learning. And um, this has been used for cardiovascular uh, disease. Uh, but also, I think the most recent, uh, very successful example is the COVID-19 um, trial in the US where they tried different drugs for uh, severe COVID-19. And very quickly uh, uh, tossed out the, uh, the drug uh, chlorochine that was very uh, popular in some areas of the world. And uh, then uh, very rapidly came after like two, two months came to that dexamethasone, the, the old uh, cortisone drug was the most effective one. And um, if they have used, they have like six, seven different drugs at the same time. If they've done six, seven trials, I think it wouldn't have taken two months. It would have taken six to eight months. This is a very effective way of actually finding drugs that work. And this kind of adaptive design has not been used in oncology before. I think uh, ProBio is, is the forerunner of actually using this. Cool. Could could this be used? Now we're talking prostate cancer and advanced prostate cancer. You know, could this technique, if it's successful, uh, which it probably will be, could it be used in in other uh, cancer treatment as well or, or cancer research? Absolutely. I mean, this is just a this is a, this is a design framework that we build up for for oncology with biomarkers and adaptive design, uh, a platform design, um, and this could be used for breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer. Um, and I think the, the key here is to, to get the pharmaceutical companies to understand that this, this is a very effective way to test their drugs. And um, I think it's been painful for a lot of the, the pharmaceutical companies to show that 
uh, putting a lot of money into to trials that doesn't work. How uh, has the uh, pharmaceutical industry reacted so far? Do you have any contacts or uh, collaborations yet, Henrik? Uh, this was a very exp- interesting experience for my, uh, for me. I mean, when we started this uh, or planned this uh, study in 2018-19, I contacted four or five different major uh, pharmaceutical companies. And they said, well, this is interested, but um, no, thank you. Um, but we didn't give up. And then we, we talked with um, a pharmaceutical company, Janssen, at ESMO in, in 2019. And um, luckily, we, we went directly to the, to the global head um, of oncology and explained to, to, to him and, and his group for 30 minutes uh, about Provio. And um, that meeting uh, in, in that uh, uh, at ESMO actually uh, was the first, I mean, step uh, toward the collaboration we now have with Janssen with one of the uh, PARP inhibitors, Nilaparib. So uh, we started meeting with, the, uh, with their drug uh, now in October uh, in the study. And I think it's really key that you said that you contact the right level at the companies that see the full picture and also the pipeline coming up and, and also the benefit of, of really showing the value of their drug. Yeah, and I, I think they, when we sat down and discussed this in a little more detail, they understood that this might, this is probably 10 to 20 times uh, less costly. I mean, or, I mean, I mean, it costs 10 to 20 times more for them to do the same study than we do. Yeah. Um, and faster and and after that first contract with with Janssen now we are signing another contract with another large uh, pharmaceutical company and I, I foresee that this will be the future that the pharmaceutical company will come to Probio and actually ask if we could uh, include their drug hmm. so it's, it's some it's a type of it's a trial it is but could this be seen as a, a method of developing pharmaceuticals in the future yeah, I think these kind of platform trials um, in prostate cancer, there's, there's another example called Stampede, which started more than 15 years ago in the UK. And it's been extremely uh, successful uh, connecting over 120 different, uh, 140 different uh, sites in the UK to study metastatic prostate cancer. And, and they've been really showing that platform trials um, all the way forward. And um, we are taking it to the next level as we use biomarkers at the same time, um, mm. which makes it much more effective. Uh, Extra level. Yeah. So, and, and uh, of course, in my dream, um, the prior the prior trial will continue forever, not forever, but at least 10, uh, 20 years. So being like a, a machine that you actually test new drugs with. Cool. And, and could you be able to? And there, yeah, yeah, you have answered the question. But but in this podcast, we have discussed lutetium and the future for lutetium for prostate cancer. So you could uh, potentially include that type of drugs when it's on the market uh, in future. Absolutely. In the trial as well. Uh, absolutely. And I think the the thing with a drug like uh, lutetium, we don't know which biomarkers or which uh, subgroup of patients that actually respond to uh, lutetium. And I think that um, that uh, a study like Probio could very easily um, incorporate a drug like that and actually see which patients benefit and which don't. 
I think mm. that's the key. I mean, that is really interesting as now we have studies for this specific uh, lutetium PSMA, and uh, but it's very late in the treatment, in the course of the disease, too late, you could, might argue. I mean, could this also be a potential to dare to or, or be able to put it earlier in the uh, disease course? Yeah, I, I, definitely. I, I would like to explain a little bit about the disease course of metastatic prostate cancer. It, it, it starts yes. in, in the face. Please do. <laughs> yeah, where we call the hormone-sensitive uh, metastatic prostate cancer. That's, this is where it's actually primarily diagnosed if a man comes in with 400 in PSA and, and bone metastasis uh, directly. That's what we call de novo metastatic prostate cancer. Um, and that's, that's first-line treatment of uh, metastatic prostate cancer. And then the patient, unfortunately, no one are cured in this stage. And then you get treatment. And then finally, uh, you get progression and coming into what we call castrant-resistant metastatic prostate cancer, which is really a, an odd term because it's, uh, you, you, it, it's still um, sensitive to uh, hormone therapy. Uh, but then we go into second line and third line of metastatic uh, treatment. And um, today, lutetium is used in third line mostly, or as has been uh, studied in third line. Uh, but of course, in first line, we have really good drugs. We have new hormonal uh, agents. We have docetaxel, um, chemotherapy. But we know that a subset of these uh, men that comes in with newly uh, metastatic prostate cancer respond very uh, poorly to the uh, known drugs. And of course, in that subpopulation, it would be very interesting to see if lutetium was uh, something that you can test. We had uh, uh, Germo Garrick, he is, uh, uh, what is his position? He is medical uh, director, he's the head of, of uh, I mean, clinical development, you could say. At AAA. And he said oh. that in, in five to 10 years, uh, the new lutetium drugs or the new radiopharmaceutical drugs will be used in combination with other therapies. Is that something you could find in these trials as well, to, optimal combination? Uh, this is a very interesting question about combination. And um, the, I mean, so far, uh, until piece one was uh, presented at ESMO, combinations in metastatic prostate cancer has been unsuccessful. Um, it, it hasn't really... Um, I mean, all the trials that had tried to combine um, chemotherapy with something has actually failed. Um, so it's it's um, uh, it, it's yet to be proven, I would say. I think that the, as I see it, most likely it will not be a combination for everyone. It will be um, it will be most likely we, because we already have the hormone uh, treatment as a backbone with uh, GNHR. That we actually uh, we castrate the patient and that's a backbone and so that's one treatment and then you add for example chemotherapy that's a combination treatment and if you just add a third thing to that uh, that has so far only uh, uh, given side effects but for example you have this combination with lutetium psma and parp inhibitor and that you also have lutetium uh, I mean, yeah, lutetium obturatate for net patients combining with PARP inhibitor. Sure. Uh, I said, but this is for prostate cancer. 
And of course, yes. in other diseases, I mean, combination breast cancer or other thing has been much more successful. Yes. Uh, yeah. But it has still yet to be proven that actually combining two po mm -hmm. uh, potent drugs with hormones uh, yes. is better than taking it um, sequentially. Is there a, speci a special explanation why do you see this uh, difference in prostate cancer? Yeah, I think so, because we it's the um, the hormone that it's a hormone dependent and we have a very effective way of, of closing down the androgen receptor pathway with the GNHR. Um, um, and um, so I think this is something that is different for lung cancer, for example, where you don't have this major pathway that all cancers are uh, driven by. So I think this is why it's, it's much more difficult to, to get the combinations to work. Because you also work with a little bit elderly patients where you side effects um, will be a, a problem. So I would say start with the uh, single agent, show in which subgroup it works. And then from that, you can try to uh, combine. But if you try to combine from the beginning for everyone, it's going to be extremely difficult to really tease out who is actually benefited from that. And I think that's the the major, the major. Uh, well, I, I think I think the major error that actually the most of the trials are doing today, trying to treat everyone with combination. And, and talking about challenges, uh, what do you see? What has been the largest challenge so far for for ProBio? COVID-19. <laughs> we, we started the trial. We started the trial um, uh, slowly in Sweden uh, during 2019. And uh, we're planning to ramp up for, for from five to 10 centers in Sweden during early 2020. And we had planned the start meeting here at Aarhus in Oslo in 18th of March last year. Uh, so it's it's really eighteen months later that we get started. So I think the the major challenge has actually been COVID, and, and then if you if you go the trial itself, I think that one major challenge is the an administrative overhead uh, that you, and all the red tape you have to go through in each country. Uh, you wouldn't imagine all the different uh, things you need to do if you are running a trial like this, uh, and. Um, I think the, all these uh, regulations are made for major pharmaceutical companies that has 10 times more people than we do. Um, so I think that's, that's one. But we have, we've been uh, managing this. And the third thing, of course, in the long run is to, um, uh, to get uh, funding. So if, if someone has uh, 10 million uh, euros, uh, please send it. It would be nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and we hope this uh, pod might uh, help to spread the word yeah. on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 200 patients are participating in the study so far, 10 centers in Sweden, 10 centers in Belgium, and just starting now in, in Norway, uh, uh, some more countries? Yes, uh, Switzerland will start the first center in Basel, uh, 14th of January. Um, so uh, hopefully at the uh, before summer next year, uh, we have 35 centers, including patient in ProBio. And how has it been received so far? I think it, uh, things that has been easier than I thought. It's been very uh, easy to convey oncologists to uh, be part of ProBio and actually include patients. 
um, they think that this is a very interesting and cool idea that we're trying to do. And um, I mean, if you have been running normal randomized clinical trials for 15 years and sometimes something very different comes up, you immediately get very interested. Um, another thing that's been very good, it's been very uh, well received from patients uh, also. And, and uh, this is very important for me because, I mean, I think that you need to run ethical trials. I think that's one of, we have examples in the prostate cancer field that uh, they are running, there are a couple of unethical trials and I will come back to that. But I think it's very important that you are putting patient first. Uh, in exactly. So happy to hear. And I mean, that's really the one that benefits the most. Yeah. A lot of people around the patient benefit, of course, but the patient itself that can make the huge difference. Yeah. And I explained it to patients are, are, uh, that uh, could be included in ProBio. He said, I said, okay, we can use uh, a new blood test that we can see uh, and, and perhaps predict if you're going to get chemotherapy, hormone therapy or something else. Um, and in this trial, uh, we are trying to do the best we can, both with the uh, biomarkers, but also in the control arm, because that's standard of care, as we call it. That means that the physician, uh, he or she can choose what treatment they think is best for the patient at that time. And I think this is very important. It's not a fixed control arm that you from the beginning, because you get new, uh, new drugs uh, the whole time. And if you fix a control arm at the end of the study, it will get uh, unethical because you don't treat the patient the best you can. Uh, and I think we have so many examples on that from, from pharma, uh, pharma driven uh, studies. Right. And also when you're trying to get a new drug approved and talking to authorities and they question the control arm and say it's not relevant or you're comparing with the wrong thing or what it is. Yeah, and, and the very, the, one of the edges of ProBio is we have biomarkers on both the control and the experimental arms, of course. And we, we, when we're comparing patients in the control arm, we used the same biomarker uh, group in the control arm and comparing that with the experimental, uh, with the same biomarker. So you compare absolutely apples and apples. So it's, it's a very, very good uh, controlled uh, study in that uh, respect. The future. Uh, and I mean, as this is really a dynamic study, as you say, and then uh, it's moving and, and it's adaptive. Uh, the patients are already now benefiting from the study, being included in the study, as I understand. But also, how do you see in what time perspective will the larger amount of, of uh, patients benefit? Well, I think that uh, let's put it from the study perspective first. Um, if we get all these centers up and running and, and COVID doesn't uh, put new hurdles on the study, um, it's, it's not unlikely that the first arm will graduate in late next year, uh, 2022 or early 2023. And I think that will be an eye opener for a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, both patient organizations, but also physicians that this is the future. Um, so I think that that will, uh, in the short run, but to getting these two patients in a more broader, you need, um, uh, someone that are actually doing these biomarker signatures with uh, 
ctDNA. And um, that is actually a problem uh, that there is very few laboratories or companies that actually offers this. The only company that do that is Foundation Medicine, um, a US company that you can buy this uh, kind of analysis from. Uh, but it's very limited use in the U, uh, uh, in Europe right now due to cost. Um, so we need several labs and companies to, to do these kind of uh, tests. Otherwise, it's never going to be used. A great business idea for someone out there that's running a lab. Start this type of, of, of tests. Uh, you seem to have a lot of ideas. What's around the corner? I think this is a. I think the other thing that you could use biomarkers for is is early detection. As we, we have the Stockholm three test, but I think there are now more and more data out there that you can use ctDNA, circulating tumor DNA, in the uh, diagnostic of localized cancer. And I think that that would be something that actually uh, is a game changer, that you can use a blood test and uh, find mutations very early. And there is a big company, uh, Grail, in the US that actually have published uh, very interesting data the last year on this. Uh, and uh, I think within five years, um, it's likely that these kind of tests will be available. Um, so I think this will, it's really showing that uh, genomics uh, in a very broad perspective uh, could have a major impact in uh, clinical oncology. Yeah, and I've been I've been to several uh, uh, scientific meetings this uh, the last uh, weeks, and genomics it's one of the topics in all the meetings I've, I've been to. I think so. So, uh, genomics has been very what's say trendy for a long time, I must say, but now it seems to really be a content into it and and the usage. It's like the ketchup effect or something. I mean, a lot of things you can do now suddenly. I think that, yeah, I agree. I mean, genomics has been for 10, 15 years, I would say. But the thing that's happened is that you can do these more complex, uh, larger panels for much less money than you could uh, 10, 15 years or five years ago, I would say. And the other thing that's actually been changing is also uh, computer power. Uh, it's computing power that's been uh, limited uh, um, when we started doing the ctDNA analysis, it could take 48 hours uh, to do uh, one analysis of one sample. And uh, of course, with these cloud, kind of cloud-based uh, systems that we have today, with uh, distributed um, computer power, uh, that is um, that is not a problem today. So I think these two two kind of things actually made genomics possible. Yeah. Um, you talked about, uh, now it's a little bit strange with the structure here maybe, but you mentioned, Henrik, on unethical studies, and you said we come back to that later. Yes, I think, I mean, uh, I'm a medical oncologist and, and I've been working with cancer patients for now for more than 30 years. Uh, and uh, I think that you can never compromise um, uh, uh, not setting patient first. I mean, that's something that you should always be the patient advocate, even if you run a, a clinical study uh, that you're very interested in. It's your, your pet project or something like that. Um, and what I've seen, unfortunately, and when, when I started oncology, I didn't see this, uh, but now a lot of the trials are rigged to actually get success in, in the way that you are having 
uh, control arm that is suboptimal, um, that you don't treat the patient with the, the available uh, drugs today. And um, uh, I think that's it's highly unethical to do that because you are putting patient into uh, danger. And for me, it's, it's, it's baffling that uh, ethical committees do not uh, see this. But I think that to be able to see it, I mean, you have to have deep knowledge into prostate cancer treatment. And I think both ethical committees don't have that. So I think it actually is, I don't think it's, and I think the one that are most responsible are those that are sponsored, that those are responsible for the trials. Um, it could be academic, it could be industry. But for me, not uh, having the best uh, treatment for patients in the control arm uh, is, is it's, it's almost criminal, I would say. I think we have come to our uh, last question now. Uh, who do you think should be our next guest in the podcast? Ooh. Um, I think you should have uh, two persons or something like talking about um, uh, genomic testing in clinic. I think you should, I mean, spin on that one. Uh, I think that you can have actually two persons on the podcast that actually uh, talks about this. Uh, from a different perspective. Pro and con. Yeah, pro and con oh. or, or different perspectives of what you can do and not do. And and or perhaps if you want to uh, go into the discussion on ethics, um, uh, perhaps actually someone who is, is more knowledgeable about that. I think that would be a very interesting topic. Uh, I mean, how, how to how to preserve the, the uh, integrity uh, from an ethical perspective on clinical trials. Thank you, uh, Hendrik, for today, and uh, good luck in Oslo. Say hello to the Norwegian people from us. Mm. I will do that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hendrik Granberg, Annette. Yes. For today's guest. Wow. What's your impression? I mean, this is the future. So fantastic with this pro-bio and also his ethical take on the patient. Yeah. Goosebumps. Yeah, I think this is the future using biomarkers uh, to to choose the right treatment and, and a little bit uh, go back to, to Rodden Hicks in the in the first episode. Yes. Uh, treat, you know, treat the tumor or treat the cancer in the right phase with the right pharmaceuticals. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And this gives the this is the tool to use. And also adaptive. You can act very fast when there's new treatments coming on. Yeah, that's cool. This type of machine learning, you, the, the trial learn by itself. Uh, that's cool. And prostate cancer, that is the topic now. But there are so many other areas where you can use it. Yes, it is. Okay, Annette. Thank you for today. Thank uh, you, Gustav. If you want to reach out to us, how do you do? Podcast at samnordic.se podcast at samnordic.se visit our homepage or LinkedIn site uh, thank you Annette thank you Gustav and uh, stay safe stay tuned bye 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 bye